presidents are not required to, and the uh, American public knew that he didn't release them before they voted for him. So that's all right. I'm reclaiming my time now. Do you know what the president's hiding? Can you repeat that? I'm sorry. Do you know what he's hiding? I mean, he doesn't uh, want anybody to see him. Certainly not. Not the Congress. I don't think he's hiding anything. But okay, no. so you don't know. Correct. Is that what I you're don't saying? know anything about his tax. Return. All right. The president does not want to share his financial records with Congress. Uh, the Congress, or at least the, the committee that's been requesting it, is saying that they want to study those financial records. We believe that no one is above the law, including the president of the United States, and we believe that the president of the United States is engaged in a cover-up, in a cover-up. Hello, welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Yasha Monk. Something very interesting happened in Turkey recently. Turkey is ruled by an authoritarian populist who, even though he likes and dislikes things that are very different from Donald Trump, has a lot of substantive similarities with Trump. He thinks that he and he alone truly speaks for the people and that anybody who disagrees with him is illegitimate, calling journalists enemies of the people, calling the opposition traitors. Well, even though he now controls a lot of a country's media system, even though he has jailed some of his opponents, Recep Erdogan actually suffered a massive defeat in recent municipal elections, losing control of the capital, Ankara, and the country's biggest city, Istanbul. Well, this revealed something very interesting about the way in which authoritarian populists can use and abuse elections. As long as Erdogan was able to squeeze out victories at the polls by counting the vote relatively fairly while making it very hard for the opposition to actually campaign, he claimed democratic legitimacy from elections. But as soon as he narrowly lost this important election, he had his cronies on the Electoral Commission overturn its results and order a new set of elections for June 2019. This is a very worrying sign of how populists can get to power through elections, cement their power by claiming democratic legitimacy, and then cancelling the outcome of elections as soon as they turn against them. It is just one more sign of how serious a threat authoritarian populism poses to democracy in countries like Turkey, but also in many other parts of the world. My guests today are Nicholas Begrun and Nathan Gadels. They are the co-founders of the Begrun Institute and have just written an interesting book called Renovating Democracy, Governing in the Age of Globalization and Digital Capitalism. Nathan and Nicholas, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you. Thank you. So one of the things that I really enjoyed about this book is that it gets at the nature of the problems we're facing right now in the United States and in other democracies around the world from a slightly different vantage point than we used to here on Trumpcast, where we tend to think about the latest thing that the president has done, or even the ways that I tend to think about it in my work. How would you describe the nature of a problem that we're facing right now and that is being manifested in, in, in phenomena like the rise of Donald Trump? I think what's happened is that the political class that ruled before, let's say before Trump, before the rise of pop populism, really was engaged in the decaying and the decadence of democracy in that organized special interest and insider establishment captured the instruments of democratic deliberation. So people who felt excluded uh, and were excluded uh, have revolted against that political class. But the problem now with the rise of populism 
is that the Morbin, the revolt against the Morbin political class has become a revolt against governance itself, against the institutions, the norms, the practices, and checks and balances that uh, avoid the, the, the um, suicide of republics. So what we try to address in the book is how to mend that breach of distrust between the institutions of self-government and the public. Uh, that's why we talk about participation without populism, how to integrate social networks and more direct democracy into the governing system to give people a voice, but also through new mediating institutions that sort out the cacophony of voices, the welter of conflicting interest, and the deluge of contested information uh, so that we can come to a governing consensus. So the first answer you gave is about the nature of the old ruling elites, that they were captured by special interests, that they didn't really stand up for what people needed. To what extent is that in itself a function of the economic system? I mean, to what extent is what we're seeing a winner-take-all economy, which makes it easy for special interests and so on to dominate our politics in the way that it has? Nichols can talk to this a lot about uh, the, the point we make in the book about pre-distribution of wealth uh, instead of redistribution of wealth after the fact. I think one of the factors involved is not just globalization and the displacement of jobs as a result of global integration of markets, but also the rise of digital capitalism, which is separating employment and income or divorcing employment and income from wealth creation and productivity growth. So what do you mean by digital capitalism? What is that? Digital capitalism is the integration of knowledge and digital technologies into production, including the production of communication, which is social media. For example, robots. Robots displace jobs. Productivity displaces jobs. Uh, in the book, we talk about how most jobs of the past 20 years were displaced by productivity growth in the introduction of intelligent machines instead of trade. So these pressures and these anxieties fed in to the populist revolt. So it's not just the Rust Belt. It's what's coming down the pike and people are very anxious about their, their futures. And the problem with uh, what we call the moribund political class is it was ignoring these realities because it was tied up by, like I said, organized special interests, the, whether it's big tech or the financial industry that concentrates wealth. So I guess what you're saying is that there's this double movement. I'm still not sure how they're related to each other, but that there is a set of economic changes that displaces a whole set of jobs and makes people very unsure about their future. And then there is a failure of a political class to actually respond to that and them getting captured in some way by special interests. Well put. But I think there's two other things. One, just what's happened over the last 30 years. You've had enormous change. Overall, let's say very positive if you look at the planet. Over the last 30 years, you had technology globalization, multiculturalism that made sort of the world one from the standpoint of trade. Uh, it began to mix cultures and it lifted, I would say, uh, economics for a lot of people who didn't have really a chance. So it changed the world overall, but it also disrupted the world. So in a world that's moving very fast, even if incomes are going up, uh, uncertainty is rising. That is coupled with the fact that social media has given access to everyone at an equal level. So everybody can have a voice, that's very good, but also wants to have a voice. And that's very difficult for the systems, the traditional political systems, uh, both uh, East and West, that we're used to. So you have two sets of disruptions uh, that are coupled with what uh, Nathan talked about, meaning uh, the fact that the wealth and power is going to get 
and has already gotten much more concentrated. Meaning, if you look at the future, and this is the economic question, if you look at the future, you really won't need that much labor or capital. The real value is in the intellectual property. And you see that more and more. So you've got to rethink how do you include uh, people and um, how do you do it in a way that's fair from an economic standpoint, but also just from a dignity and human standpoint. And that, I think, is the anxiety that uh, people are feeling. And uh, it's easy to translate anxiety into reactionary or simple responses. And that's the political environment I think we're in. So that's a great and broad account of the challenges, but there's a lot of things in there. It's a multi-pronged attack on our ability to govern ourselves decently. So what does the response to that look like? Nathan has spoken a little bit about the potential of pre-distribution. What do you mean by that, Nicholas? What's the difference between redistribution and pre-distribution, and why might pre-distribution be a way to think about how to manage the inequities of this political moment? I think you're right. I mean, the questions are on... Two levels. One is how do we respond uh, system from a system standpoint uh, politically, and how do we respond economically? Economically, uh, one idea that we've been working on at the institute is pre-distribution, and simply the way things work today, everywhere, and capitalism has conquered the world, is people make money, companies make money, and taxes are then used to redistribute these spoils. And that is, number one, not necessarily always that efficient. Number two, it creates sort of winners and losers, rebalances by, you know, sending money from one side to the other. But it really doesn't make people feel like they're part of the same journey. They're almost sort of at, you know, two sides of the economy. And the idea of pre-distribution is to bring in people uh, from the beginning Uh, meaning include everyone, sort of inclusive capitalism, if you want, uh, by giving everyone a share of the pie from the beginning as opposed to fighting for the pie once it's baked. And that sounds wonderful. I want a pie from the beginning and I want to feel like I helped bake the pie rather than seeing other people do it and then give me a little slice as a favor because I'm looking miserable being hungry at the side of a dinner table. But what does that mean concretely? How do you organize an economy to make sure that everybody has this feeling that they can be a part of this productive enterprise in an equitable way as opposed to having to wait for this redistribution after the fact? So concretely, you could have For example, the state, meaning the entire country, owning a piece of everything that's productive and valuable. And you can do it in a way that's actually very constructive. For example, for any new companies, it could only be new. It couldn't go backwards. But for any new companies, as opposed to, let's say, taxes, or in lieu of a different rate of taxes, companies would contribute a percentage of their business from the beginning, let's say 10%, 20%, maybe 30%, uh, to a you know, state fund, a little bit like a sovereign wealth fund, in which uh, the state and every citizen, therefore, um, is a stakeholder. So that um, the the value of all these stakes, as they accumulate, become really something quite substantial. And that is being shared and redistributed to all the citizens. So you create a new business, that business becomes valuable. The value of this, of your shares, are part of the sovereign wealth fund, Every uh, citizen can actually, thanks to these days uh, technology, frankly blockchain, you can give every citizen a sense of what is their ownership in the big pool, 
what is their uh, sort of pool of value that's theirs. And you could have a program where the, at the end of the day, most of these stakes and most of the dividends that come out from the value of these businesses go to the budget, which at the end provides for services for citizens. But you could also direct some of it to citizens themselves so that they could have a claim on uh, some of that value so that they can fund for some of their needs, healthcare, education, housing, anything that's really important to them. So you start by giving everybody something at the beginning. So everybody is in the same boat. So the state, citizens, and obviously the companies, it doesn't change incentives for capitalists. So you sort of have capitalists and capitalism well and alive, but you also have people who are all on the same side as opposed to, you know, fighting it out. The concept is that as we move into the digital age, which I said before is divorcing employment and income from productivity growth and wealth creation, everyone should have an equity share in owning the robots that are generating the wealth but are displacing jobs through intelligent machines. If you go back to Piketty's uh, famous book on capital, the big social divide in the, and, and part of what's driven the populist revolt is the dynamic of those who have return on capital and those who only have their labor. So if that's the main social breach, the issue is how to increase those on the short end, how to enhance the skills and opportunities of the less well-off in the first place, pre-distribution, rather than just distributing the wealth after the fact. You still need to distribute wealth. You still need taxes to fund public higher education and so on. But what we're talking about is universal basic capital. If you want to reduce inequality, the best way to do it is to spread the equity around. Now, Nicholas mentioned conceptually how it might work. Uh, there are many practical ways. Mutual funds, where everyone is a participant that's invested in these companies. Platform cooperatives. For example, instead of Uber or Lyft owning a neighborhood ride-sharing program, it could be owned by the citizens in the neighborhood where they get a share of each ride distributed, self-administered and distributed through blockchain. There's data dividends that California Governor Newsom has talked about where everyone gets a share or a return or a royalty on the personal data being used by big tech. So there are many ways to reach this goal, but the point is you want to enhance the skills and assets of the less well-off in the first place instead of just redistributing afterwards. Otherwise, with universal basic income, to take that, uh, that alternative example, you're perpetuating the structures of inequality. You're not breaking them down. All of that sounds fascinating. I'm trying to understand how it would concretely empower people. So certainly it sounds like it would make sure that we have the money we need as a country, for example, to offer decent healthcare to our citizens, to put more money into education and all of the kinds of things which I think a lot of us really want to do. And that's very important in itself. But I suppose, you know, what would happen in this world, let's say there's a new company like Uber that comes along and this state-owned fund now has a 10% stake in that company. And so I can see that some of its profits also benefit me in various ways as a citizen of this country. That's all nice. I appreciate that. But it still would feel a little abstract, wouldn't it? I'm not sitting in the company making decisions about how it should act. It doesn't necessarily mean that I get to be one of the two or 3,000 employees of a company who's very well compensated. So, you know, if I am sitting in the middle of a country and I don't have, you know, an advanced degree, I don't feel like the new knowledge economy, the new digital economy is really valuing my talents particularly, how is it that that would make me really feel empowered? Why is it that this will make me feel like I'm needed in my country, I can make a real contribution, and I don't have to be angry at the political and economic system that's making me feel unneeded? You're getting a return on capital. 
capital compounds, the awesome power of compound interest. That's what separates the capitalist from the laborer. That's the huge difference. I think it's very psychological, but also very real, because you suddenly everybody benefits, including the state, frankly, which normally is a debtor, uh, benefits uh, in the uh, creativity uh, and, frankly, the sort of the capitalist uh, system. So everybody's on the same side, and uh, uh, the, 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 the benefits will be tangible, but also psychological. Also, also, I would just add uh, the investment in public higher education, enhancing the, the opportunities as well as the assets, is critically important. Uh, in California, we have a, a, a state university system, California State University system, with 470,000 students, 23 campuses. Cal State Los Angeles is the number one school in the nation from lifting those out of the bottom 20% into the top 20% onto the middle class of the top 20% because you can't, one of the fissures created by digital capitalism is, is the bifurcation of the labor market into high skill bias jobs and low wage jobs. The productivity and the wealth is in the high wage skill bias jobs. Most jobs are created in, not in that sector. So the productivity is where the jobs aren't and the jobs are where the productivity isn't. This is one way to breach that growing gap. It's going to grow even greater as we go forward into the digital economy. So you also talk a lot about politics. And my understanding is you start with a point of frustration about how little we can get done politically in the United States compared, for example, to countries like China. And this to me is one of the big elements that helps to explain the rise of people like Trump. But we have the sense that there is this complete gridlock and nothing will get done anyway. And so if somebody comes in and says, I'm going to break a bunch of things, just entrust me with a little bit of power, people think, well, perhaps it's worth trying that because clearly the status quo isn't working. So you have a set of ideas about how to both involve people more in politics, but also make sure that our political institutions can actually be more efficient, can actually make decisions and deliver services for people. First of all, before we get to the solution, what's the nature of a problem? Why is it that China can build uh, high-speed rail across the country, can do big infrastructure projects and all of those things, whereas a lot of democracies struggle with accomplishing the same tasks? I would say... These systems are very different, not just politically, but also culturally. We in the West have empowered the individual. And if you look at Eastern traditions, especially China, monopoly of power uh, has always been in the hands of one. And you have the sense that the community is more important than the individual. So it comes from a very different place culturally. So we have to recognize that. So it's not just a question of competing systems and uh, their system is not right, and our system is not right. So it starts from there. I think that the Chinese system would never work here, or vice versa. So we've got to be, I think, conscious of that. China, they have one government, and there's a monopoly of power in the government, in the hands of the party. The party and the government has one role, which is to deliver services to citizens. There aren't any alternatives. So they'll do a good job or a bad job. If they do a bad job, they'll get removed sooner or later. So I was just asked to participate in a debate about whether we have too much or too little democracy in the United States. And I think, by and large, my instinct is to say that we have too little democracy in the United States, that a lot of people feel that they don't have a real say in their political system and that they're quite frustrated by that and that they're right about that, that there is a real way in which 
a lot of decisions have been taken out of the hands of Congress and a real way in which money influences and corrupts what Congress actually does. But at the same time, there's this sort of slightly different problem, which is an inability to actually act. Right. So people both feel that nobody's listening to me and that nobody can get anything done. And I think they might be willing to put up with one or the other. If they felt that they are really part of a process, they might be more patient with its inability to produce results. And if they had the feeling that the country is run really efficiently and we can deal with all of our big problems, they might be more forgiving about the fact that they feel like it's a bunch of remote elites who are calling the shots. So how do we solve this double problem? How do we deal with these two things at the same time? The question is not too much democracy or too little democracy. It's the wrong kind of democracy. Uh, it's democracy that does not uh, engage citizens sufficiently that they feel that their dignity is addressed and their concerns are addressed. And one way to do that is to bring citizens more into the process, but that requires some mediating institutions so you don't just have mob rule, but you have uh, real registration of people's concerns processed into policies that are effective. I mean, you cannot have effectiveness. You keep talking about Trump uh, being effective by breaking things up. He's not being effective because those short-term explosions won't fix what's wrong systemically with the system. In order to fix things, you need a governing consensus. So you need institutions that can reach a governing consensus that are also inclusive. So inclusion and consensus are the two aims. So in the book, we talk about participation without populism by bringing people more into the process to complement representative government, not to replace it, because representative government uh, comes into being through elections and elections, as you mentioned, are dominated by organized special interest and money. How do you get the citizen voice in there? So there are many ways to do it. Uh, we go over in the book. Uh, I'll just use an example of, 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 of Ireland, their experience with citizens assemblies. Probably one of the most emotional issues you can imagine in a place like Ireland is the question of abortion. There was going to be a referendum about whether an article of the Constitution that outlawed abortion should be taken out of the Constitution. In order to develop consensus among citizens, because when political parties get engaged, they're vying for power and they're playing to the base just like Trump does. How do you get citizens engaged to sit down like a jury, hear the pros, hear the cons, hear the evidence, and make a decision that's binding and effective? So in, in Ireland, a citizens' assembly gathered, uh, 160 something, some citizens indicative of the entire country in terms of representing uh, gender and regions and so on and so forth, that discussed the issue, came up with the recommendation, uh, not for or against abortion, but that it should not be in the Constitution. And that went to a referendum in which 66% of the public voted in favor of removing it from the Constitution. So if you can do it on such a contentious and emotional issue as abortion in Ireland, it will work in, in many other realms. So I think to engage citizens in a way that doesn't lead to the pure expression of public passions, of network popular sentiment, but puts them outside the electoral arena to discuss issues in a rational way as citizens with common interest, you can reach that. The problem of the, going the populist path is you just divide the public further. The problem with the old path of the morbid, morbid political class is it excludes too many people. So you've got to find another path forward so it's the right kind of democracy, deliberative democracy, democracy that engages citizens, that complements representative government, uh, not just go, go to the lame attachment to the old institutions or blowing things up and breaking things up, as you say Donald Trump is doing. 
So that sounds great, but I'm having trouble picturing it. I mean, what would it mean concretely for people listening to this podcast right now to be involved in these kind of decision-making processes? And what can we do right now to push that future along? Well, let's take California for an example. California is already a direct democracy. We have a governor, we have a legislature, but in fact, the most consequential decisions, taxes, budget, environment, are made by the citizens themselves at the ballot box. It already happens in California. The problem is that the process has not been mediated. There's no second reading of citizen ballot initiatives until a law we passed in 2014. But before that law, anyone who gathered 350,000 signatures or 400-something thousand, if you want to change the Constitution, qualified and then was put on the ballot. So you could, you could outlaw same-sex marriage, which Californians did. You could outlaw benefits to immigrants, which Californians did. Both were later thrown out in the courts. Or you can say, we, want, we, we don't want to pay taxes, Prop 13, or property taxes are, we're going to tax the rich. That's a pretty effective instrument. The problem is you need to tame that instrument so that it's not counterproductive, it's not invaded by, by private special interests to, to manipulate it, and have a processes like I described, be citizens' assemblies or citizens' juries as a second reading of popular propositions so that they end up being effective and addressing the problems that they're supposed to address and not be hijacked. So in California, it's a very real thing. You can go and vote at the ballot box and you can determine taxes and you can determine budget. It's already there. The problem is not the participation. The problem is the deliberation. I noticed that so far you have not quite bitten on my questions about Donald Trump. How do you see Donald Trump, Nathan and Nicholas, as fitting into this whole picture? I mean, do you see this as an outgrowth of those problems? Do you see it as just a symptom that we don't have to worry about too much because it'll sort of go away of its own accord? What would it do if people like Donald Trump are actually in power for the next 20 or 30 years? Because I assume that they're not particularly interested either in pre-distribution or in high-minded forms of deliberative democracy. I mean, how should we think about the rise of these liberal forces in our politics as both an existential challenge to our political system and to our ability to actually carry out the kind of reforms that you're proposing. At least I view, this Nicholas, I view Donald Trump more as a symptom than the cause. But he's not the only symptom. There are other symptoms, meaning people like Donald Trump in other democracies or, you know, soon in other democracies. So it's a symptom of something that needs to be fixed in the system. So it's a bit like if a patient is sick, well, you get uh, symptoms. So we have to remember that uh, Donald Trump came after two terms of Obama. So if people felt very good about Obama, then you wouldn't have had a Trump. Uh, Trump is obviously a reaction to a system that's not entirely healthy. On the other hand, you can say, well, listen, it's normal process of democracies, you know, pendulum swings back and forth. But in this case, I think it's a little bit more extreme. Uh, going back to what Nathan said, I think there's a real sense that people don't like the way they're being governed, they don't like government, and therefore they prefer a system that's sort of being starved or being shocked. So we need a response. And the question is, what is that response? And people always point out to leaders in elections. I don't think that's the response. I mean, again, you had Trump after Obama. So the elections won't fix things. You have to have a change in the system. And going back to what Nathan described, you can today have citizens participate in everything. And I think, let's take that chance, but let's do it in a way that's uh, mediated. And part of what we propose in the book is 
consult citizens, you can have citizens equivalent to juries, uh, inform both the electorate, but also the representatives, and also the bureaucracy as to, you know, their opinions on different things. And then the real question is, how do you get to decisions? In some cases, maybe referendums, but in some cases, the elected representatives, and in some cases, the administration that, frankly, are the experts. So you need to be able to take citizens' participation to a point where decisions are going to be reflecting their thinking, but in a way that also works for the long term of society and for all of society, not just some. And that's really the struggle we're in today in terms of our democratic mm. systems. Biting on the Trump question, which you keep asking, he absolutely sets things back. Uh, you asked about China before. China's system is oriented towards uh, consensus and long-term thinking. President Xi Jinping, for example, has a plan for the next 30 years, uh, not just for China, but for the whole world. Donald Trump relishes battling his way through every 24-hour news cycle, trying to dominate the viral memes of the moment. He puts tariffs on China to bring in $12 billion in revenue, which then he turns around and pays to the farmers who would have made that by trading with China. So these kind of short-term, non-systemic populist outbursts are absolutely setting things back. But I don't think you can get to another future by simply elections. Sure, everyone would like to see Donald Trump out of office and someone else like Pete Buttigieg or somebody like that in, in power that represents a different America like Obama did. But until you find mechanisms to reach a governing consensus, you're not mending the system. Trump, as Nicholas said, Trump is a symptom of the decay of the institutions of self-government that have lost their trust in the public. So that has to be fixed or you're really not going to, whether it's 10 years or 20 years, you're not gonna reverse the system. And I would add one, one of the things, since you like to talk about double movements, at the same time you see the rise of these populists around the world, Viktor Orban, Putin, Trump, and so on, you're also seeing an explosion of direct democracy at the local and provincial levels around the world, in Australia, in Canada, in Iceland, in Italy, in Germany, all these kind of citizens' movements that are trying to figure out a new way of citizens' engagement that includes deliberation and not just pure expression of, of public passions is happening all over the place for the same reason, the frustration with the polarization and paralysis that prevails today. Nicholas, I have to ask you one question, which is that it's not every day you hear a well-known investor, a billionaire asking for partial public ownership of private corporations. So I'm sort of imagining two different critics of yours at this moment. One might be some other very wealthy people in this country saying, why are you doing this? What's wrong with you? Why are you saying that we should give up part of corporations that might be founded in the future to the state. This is the opposite of what should be happening. On the other hand, you might picture a critic like Anand Giridardas, who has spoken quite critically about the way in which foundations and the way in which affluent people sort of give a nod to the common interest while actually in certain ways pursuing their own interests. So how do you see yourself in this debate and how would you answer these two hypothetical critics? I personally, but also we in general at the Institute, we're trying to come up with new solutions. So, you know, in, in some ways, the solutions are, you know, stand for themselves. I think that's the most important. In terms of what redistribution or universal basic capital means, uh, as Nathan described it, is really uh, ownership of the robots um, uh, for all at some point. Uh, but from the standpoint of... Um, uh, transferring wealth, uh, tr wealth is being transferred today anyway through taxes. 
So as opposed to having a fight on taxes here, you it's a different fight, but maybe a more constructive fight in the sense that everybody is an owner and everybody is on the same journey. And that's really a big difference in mindset. And it's not a question of one way or another, there's going to be rebalancing and redistribution. So as opposed to doing it after the fact, you do it before, so everybody's included. And I think for a capitalist who's starting a business, let's say you start a business tomorrow, it really doesn't make much of a difference if you own 80% of the business or 100% of the business. If it's going to be a big success, it's going to be a big success one way or another. And you won't be able to you know, attract more or less capital. Uh, capital and, frankly, uh, labor is less and less of an issue was really at stake, uh, you know, the, the, the quality of the idea. So if you have a good idea, you'll be able to build your business, attract people, uh, bring in capital. But if 20% of your business is owned by everyone, well, everybody's going to be on your side rooting for you. Everybody's going to participate. There's going to be less of a haves and haves not, and you change very much the spirit of capitalism. Nathan and Nicholas, I learned a lot from reading a book. It really made me think in a new way about some of the big issues that we have to deal with if we want to respond to the challenge of Donald Trump and of rising populism in the world, not just in the short run, but in the long term. Thank you so much. Thank you, Yasha. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you. Wonderful questions. That's our show for today. Say hello to us on Twitter and let us know what you think. I'm at Yasha Munk, Y-A-S-C-H-A underscore M-O-U-N-K. You can find the show at Real Trumpcast. Before you go, I have one more request. Sign up for Slate Plus. It's only $35 for the first year and it gets you the full roster of Slate podcasts. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Danielle Hewitt. I'm Yasha Monk. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.